fun little text this morning about slaves and masters. It's going to be a real highlight, kicking off our uh, kids' camp week, but I'm kind of excited to get to do this uh, for a variety of reasons. One, today kind of starts, kicks off what we're calling freedom season, right? Uh, I don't know if you guys know freedom season is, but it starts today and it goes till July 4th. Freedom season. I just made it up right now. It's freedom season, but that's, that's how it's going. But today's Juneteenth, so June 19th. It's the day that the Union Army uh, finally got to Texas and finally enforced the last bit of the Emancipation Proclamation so that slavery was actually not just illegal, but actually functionally illegal in all these different places. And it's something that both uh, you know, Trump and Biden, the 2020 campaign, was promising to make a national holiday, and that happened. And so I'm grateful you know, when, when people and when nations repent, that's a big deal, right? So we thank the Lord for that. Uh, but Opal Lee is the grandmother of Juneteenth. She said this about it, and I just want to celebrate this. Juneteenth isn't a black thing or a Texas thing. But it's about freedom for everybody. I advocate celebrating freedom from June 19th to July 4th. So happy freedom season, everybody. So there you go. Uh, it is a big deal. Like, I, I do think that uh, recognizing the image of God and the dignity of every person is a really big deal. Uh, from womb to tomb, it's something that we want to celebrate and be a part of wherever it happens. And I just wanted to thank the Lord for that and be grateful for it. Um, and uh, Luke and Matthew and I went to Washington, D.C. probably a couple months ago. It was about a year ago now. Actually, uh, I don't know. Time flies when you have a newborn. I don't know. It was sometime before she was born, so it could have been. But, she, but we, one of the things we did is we went and saw the Lincoln Memorial, and it was like nighttime. And so I think I've told you all before that w- nobody was there, and we're like, what's the deal? And there was a hurricane or a tornado warning. Same thing for me from Arizona. I don't what the same. Nobody was there because there was a tornado warning, and we're like, ah, you know, wind, whatever. So we went, and, but we had the whole thing to ourselves. But I remember reading... In the Lincoln Memorial, his second inaugural dress is carved into stone on the side. And I just want to read this section of it to you. It's pretty bone-chilling, right? Especially on Juneteenth and our text that's about slavery. I just want to read it. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it is necessary that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom offense cometh. That's King James Version, Matthew 18, 7. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, that means allowed, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war. So during Lincoln's second inaugural address, the Civil War is raging big time. Lots of blood, lots of death, lots of loss. Uh, the South, this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. As Abraham Lincoln saying, the Civil War is God's judgment on us for slavery. But woe to those due by those whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes, which the believers and the living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited or unpaid toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another, drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said the judgment of the Lord is true and righteous altogether. And they don't make politicians like they used to. But man, the fact that like you have Abraham Lincoln saying, you know, all the money we're sinking on this war, all the people that are dying, it's, we deserve this, right? And so, uh, I don't want to get into theology of God's wrath, but he had one, right? He had one. He had a vision for that. Uh, but that kind of brings me to our text this morning. I cannot have a conversation with someone who's not a Christian 
online or in person, that doesn't somehow come back to this. Well, the Bible supports slavery, so who cares what it says about blank? I'm sure if you're in a student or if you have a workplace, which is basically all of you, I guess, you know, you talk to non-Christians in your life, talk to skeptics in your life who go like, well, I don't care what the Bible says about LGBTQ. I don't care what the Bible says about, uh, you know, generosity. I don't care what the Bible says about the poor. The Bible supports slavery. Don't you know that that's the case? And look at this text right here. Uh, bond servants. And so how many, I don't know if any of you guys are reading the NIV. Anybody NIV readers in here? the New International Version, especially if you got a version like that, uh, it sounds worse than that one. And what'll happen too is you'll talk to folks like maybe some LDS folks who part of like their teaching is you can't really trust these Bible translations because they've been changed, manipulated by people over time. So a lot of people say those things. And so what ends up happening is when you look up Colossians 3.22, and here's what it says in the King James, it used to be bondservants obeying everything your earthly masters. Then you look at the uh, NIV, it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything. Conspiracy. The, the cover-up. They're changing the Bible. Is it slaves or bondservants? One of those was really bad. One of those. So King James says, servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh. So, which one is it? Is it slaves, bondservants, servants? Is it tough? Is the fix in? Is there a cover-up? What's the deal here? Right, so the word here in Greek is the word doulos, it means slave, servant, or bond servant. <laughs> but the reality is, is, it's kind of different. It's pretty unlike anything we have today. Probably the closest thing we have in our current uh, situation uh, economically would be like enlisting in the military, right? To sign up to be a bond servant in the first century, typically you sell yourself into bond servanthood or slavery, and you do so because you had no money, you had no access to certain training, and you go and you acquire a certain set of skills, and in six years, you would get out and oftentimes get hired back uh, by your employer, but you're definitely signing away your rights big time. And oftentimes, it was a severely abused system, and oftentimes, it was extremely dehumanizing, and people were not really regarded as fully human until they were out of their indentured servitude, but it's more of a bankruptcy situation, an indentured servitude situation, and that type of institution, bringing the word doulos into English, is kind of tough. And so different translations try to bring it out in different ways. Actually, the first version of the ESV had the word slave there. But then they kept going. When people in English hear the word slave, they think American chattel slavery. They don't think indentured servitude bankruptcy law. Right? Like nowadays, a lot of you are functionally enslaved to your debt. You have credit card debt, you have a mortgage, you have student loans, and you've got to pay it off, right? But in the first century, there's no capital, there's no leveraging, there's no banking institutions, there's no return on, no percentage turn. There's not really even any middle class. There's just owners and not owners, like people who own land, people who don't own land. And so if you wanted to learn to trade or gain a skill, you kind of had to sign yourself into slavery and get on out. And so the Bible is actually remarkably anti-slavery as a whole in terms of the American chattel slavery. I just want you to be be confident about that. There's actually this version of the Bible they found called the Slave Bible. There's actually British missionaries uh, edited out huge chunks of scripture to let the southern plantation owners evangelize their slaves. There are 1,189 chapters in a standard Protestant Bible. This Bible contains only 232. This can be seen as an attempt to appease the planter class saying, look, we're coming here, we want to help uplift materially these Africans, but we're not going to be teaching them anything that could incite rebellion. So, that looks like about 90% of the Bible had to be taken out in order to prevent the Bible inciting rebellion among slaves in the South. 
enslaved persons in the South. I'm going to say that. And here's an example. So like the book of Colossians actually totally taken out 90% of the book Exodus. I just want to give you an example of some of like the anti-slavery teaching in the Bible. So first you get Exodus 20.10. Um, slaves are actually participating in the Sabbath rest, which is remarkably humanizing uh, to say like you deserve the dignity and rest of the whole household. You're not just kind of this work person, economic contributor, period. Next, we got Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, if anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. If you steal a person and sell them, the person who buys them and the person who sells them, death penalty. That kind of rules out basically all the American chattel slavery right there. Um, then you got Exodus 21, 20. Death penalty for killing a slave. So if you killed your slave, you die. So again, humanizing, full-fledged personhood of these folks. And so uh, the other thing too in the Old Testament was you're only able to sign up for set six years and there's a year of Jubilee, everyone gets out. So it's a short term, not a lifetime, not a generational uh, situation in the way the Bible kind of regulates some of this stuff. First Timothy 1.10, contrary to sound doctrine, those who do not inherit the kingdom of God are enslavers. So did people in the South who said they were Christians enslave people? Yes. According to Paul, in 1 Timothy, will they inherit the kingdom of God? No. Right? You see why, if you wanted to give a Bible to folks who are enslaved in the South, you had to cut out about 90% of it, because it makes slave owners look really bad and makes them liable to God's judgment. Slavery in the Bible, right? So anyway, this text isn't really about American chattel slavery at all. This text is really about the doulos, this bondservant section, which is more analogous to this idea of people who are directing work and people who are working. Uh, the way we think about these, these two things working together, because uh, nobody here probably goes around calling themselves master of the house, but that was pretty common in the first century. You know, it was the one who kind of set the direction, set the tone, and directed things. Then there's other people who are on the other side of things who are receiving or being told how to work. And this is pretty similar. I would guess that every person in this room, in various situations or circumstances, is the one directing labor, right? You go to a restaurant, you give orders, take my order, right? If you're, if you're giving orders at home, that'd be a unhealthy household, right? But you go to a restaurant and you give orders and they make your food and they bring it out, right? And so you kind of are in the position of directing work. Likewise, we're in the position of serving in a variety of places where other people direct our work. And so when we think about this text, bringing it to the, the, from the first century to the 21st century, there's different seasons and cycles. Some of you are um, employees. Some of you are bosses. Some of you run companies. Some of you are in companies. All of us interact with people where there is someone directing labor and someone doing labor. And I think what uh, Paul's doing for us is he's reworking this work. And so here's our big idea we're going to actually see in this text, is that um, Paul reworks work by demoting directors, elevating employees, pushing people pleasers, and reframing returns. So that was a very long introduction to kind of saying what this text is not really about, so I can begin to now tell you what it is really about. All right, so let me pray, and I'm going to hope that we can actually see all of our various forms of labor uh, under the Lordship of Jesus. All right, Lord, have mercy on us. I pray that you make us healthier and holier people because we're here this morning. God, work in us and among us. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so work. Is work a good thing? Is work a bad thing? I know that I've lately been pretty close to a lot of people in, my, like in and around my family, and here's kind of like the story that happens in common, is people um, work their whole lives to achieve this goal called retirement, and then they retire, and then they're depressed. <laughs> I'm not saying that's some of you, but I'm saying it's probably some of you. <laughs> 
people who you know, maybe retire early or maybe retire late, but then you kind of find your, your goal of your life is to get out of working, to get away from working, to escape the curse of work. But here's the problem is humans were made to be productive. We were made to be workers. When Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, he says, um, uh, Obey and everything goes to your masters, not by people pleasing, eye service. Verse 23, Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord, not for men. Here's the question I want to ask is, What does it mean to work for the Lord? What does that mean? Because I kind of grew up just assuming it meant work hard, like do hard stuff, work, work well. There's one point in time in college when I was trying to graduate fast so that I could uh, hurry up and get married, and so I was taking 23 credit hours uh, in one semester, <laughs> like maxing I could at ASU and at MCC at the same time, trying to get out of there. I remember I was getting a C in one of the classes, and one of my pastors said, unacceptable, you need to work for the Lord, and you know, what if the Lord was your professor? And I was like, I don't know what that text means, but I know probably not that, you know, so give me a break, right? And so, like, I feel like part of, like, Christian's favorite pastime is just misusing scripture to, like, make people feel bad, you know, and I'm like, so I'm going, like, give me a break, man, I'm working, working 40 hours a week, taking 20, I'm, I'm going to get a C, you know, C's get degrees, I'm getting out of here, and so I, so, I, so I did it, it was my microeconomics class, so if you're wondering about my personal finances, there you go, you know, so that, that's how that played out, but, we, but he's like, here's, so what does work for the Lord actually mean? Does it just mean work hard, never make mistakes, do anything poorly? But I think what he's getting at is rather than seeing like the ultimate authority of how you work and why you work as being economics or being financial or even necessarily being some measure of providing, we need to go bigger than that and go back to creation and understand that work is actually God's idea. This is what we see in Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning, God is putting Adam and Eve in the garden. And here's the first problem. He says, when there was no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So there's this unplowed, unfertilized, undeveloped land for the Lord did not cause it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So the first thing is, like, the reason things get developed is because God provides and man works at the same time. The reason that things weren't growing and developing and flourishing is because God had yet provided rain and man had not yet done work. Mankind didn't work. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. That could also be translated serve and protect. Work and service are kind of the same word in Hebrew. But this idea that God has a problem, that things aren't being developed, and so he puts humanity in the garden and says work. That work is a directed like, idea of God that he would uncover the latent goodness in creation and unfold and develop all that's there by means of human sweat and toil. What we end up seeing later on in Genesis chapter 3, it says, it says this, that um, uh, chapter, two, ver- chapter 3 verse 19, it says that, there's, that after the sin enters the world, he does tell Adam that by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So there ends up being this additional motive that goes like you're going to have to work hard to provide and to eat and to survive, but that's secondary to the first creational motive, which is develop, add value, create. That providing for your family is a good motive, but it's a lesser or worse motive because it's not creational. It's actually a means of managing sinful and fallenness. That the four words that God gives humanity when he, when he uh, puts them into the world is be fruitful and multiply, subdue, and have dominion. Those first two, fruitful and multiply, have to do with reproduction, male, female coming together to make more humans. The second two, subdue and have dominion, are words that have to do like this. You see these words show up in Hebrew and other places like kneading bread is subduing the bread. Uh, when a plow goes through a field, it's subduing the field. Uh, when you're standing on top of grapes and stomping on them to make wine, you're subduing the grapes. So this is creative force. If I was going to give you a phrase for work, it's not employment, it's not getting a paycheck, it's not doing what you're told. Work is productivity or work is creative force. 
It's applying pressure to make something better than what it would have been if you didn't apply that creative pressure. That is work. That's what God's called us to do. Whether you're retired or four, we are applying creative pressure to our world, creative pressure, pressure to our world to unfold and develop and make value where there was not value and to create with God's doing and uncovering latent goodness. God does not create tables. He creates trees and we pull them out of tables. God doesn't create books. He creates trees and we pull books out of trees. Does that make sense? Like there's latent possibility and humans pull it out and make it happen. That is working for the Lord. Not just seeing your work as doing something so that you can have something to do, so that you can make some money, so eventually you can leave a pile of it to your kids so they can get a head start on leaving a bigger pile of it to their kids. Unsatisfying, unmotivating. That part of the human process of working is creating and imaging God, representing God, the great creator, the creative one. When you go to work, whether you are watching toddlers or cleaning your house or painting a wall or uh, starting a company or writing legal litigation stuff or slicing open a patient, all of this is creative force shaping, molding, directing. And God is telling us, have a bigger vision for your work than just complying with your boss. Okay? Providing's not bad, profit's not bad, but it leaves you empty and hollow because you leave it. It goes away. Inheritance, just like snowballing from generation to generation, Why? So it can just get, keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger so that you can say you did it, right? And, and I'm not saying all work is inherently as meaningful. That's one of the challenges, working in like this global, multi-level, uh, industrial economic system is being able to connect your daily contribution to the fruit that it's creating and the good it's doing in society. I think that is the creative task that many people have to do, is how does my input today connect to the well-being of society? How am I contributing to the common good through my little input today? That when you can connect that, it's easier to see I'm working for the Lord. I'm not just kind of grinding out a corporate thing so that I can climb a ladder so I can leave a bigger pile of stuff to my kids or their kids or their kids, depending on how long you go. Reworking work. That's the whole idea. Paul's going... Work for the Lord, not for man. And he does this in a couple ways. One of the next ways he does this, he does it by demoting directors. All right, now when I say directors, I mean uh, in this text it's masters or the ones who are um, in charge of the bond servants, but also I just mean people who are influencing and shaping what other people are doing. We do this in various ways, talked about it already. Uh, look at what happens right here. So he says... Um, this, uh, do whatever you can, bond servants, obey everything, those who are your earthly masters. Now that sounds like pretty straightforward, but it's actually demotion, calling it an earthly master. Imagine if I came to you, and so my wife's going to here, and I said, this is my current wife, my first wife. <laughs> You're like, what's the deal there? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's my current wife. Yeah, she's my wife right now. You know, that's, uh... I mean, it's true, but it's like, <laughs> A problem, right, if you go around introducing people like that. Like, that's kind of part of what he's going is these masters seem to have absolute authority. And Paul goes, I'm they're earthly. They're right now. It's just for a little while. Yes, they're your master, so, like, kind of let them direct what you're doing. But they're earthly. They're expiring. They're passing away. 
They're under authority. They're not right here. This kind of subtle demotion is part of what Paul's getting at and even addressing the slaves. He doesn't, because in most first century household codes, which is what this is, when they're like writing how to be a household, they would give the messages to the masters for the masters then to relay them to the wife, the child, or, or the, the bondservant. And so here Paul's directing, he's speaking directly to uh, these the bondservants and basically saying, I'm going to bypass the master's ability to regulate the message and speak right directly to you. So he's going, I have authority to speak to your bondservants, which is kind of like, I don't know if you ever hung out with um, people who have kids the same age as your kids and there's like different parenting philosophies and then someone like tries to parent your kid and you're like, please don't parent my kid. Or someone parents your kid and you're like, thank you for parenting my kid. Whatever, whatever the situation is, it's kind of like there's like lines here, you know, that, you know, like if, if, if I'm watching someone's kid and their kid misbehaves, I like address it. But if I'm with someone and their kid misbehaves and they're right there, I'm like, are you going to say something or should I say something? And there's kind of like this, I don't want to super, I don't want to go around you because you're right here. This is kind of, but this is what Paul's going. He's like, hey, I have the authority as an apostle and as a master of God to go right past the master and speak straight to the bondservants and say, hey, here's some stuff for you to think about. So he's demoting these directors by going, look, you're not all that deal. And then what he also does in, in Colossians 4 verse 1, he says, master treat your bondservants as justly and fairly, knowing you have a master in heaven. And this is what's called a threat. <laughs> you have a master in heaven. Treat them with justice and fairness. No, he doesn't say treat them what you think is just and fair. He says treat them just and fair, which is kind of stressful. If you're someone who has employees or is someone who has people work for you or if you are um, interacting with people in the service industry and you're directing their labor, this is the Lord saying to all of us right now, treat them with justice and fairness because you will be judged. You have a master in heaven. There is someone who is over you. Demoting them, right? Masters have absolute authority. No, you don't. It's temporary, and it's subject to the greater authority, which is the Lord and his gospel. Demoting directors. Next thing we see here in this work that he does is he elevates the employees. He speaks directly to the bondservant, directly to the doulos. He says, hey, look it. Um, work hardly for the Lord, not for men. Saying, uh, you aren't just working for your boss. You are working for the Lord, this might happen, you know, this, we're kind of like a lot of people are reshuffling their jobs right now, going all over the place. And, you know, I log on to LinkedIn like once a week, mostly because uh, I deleted Facebook and Instagram from my phone, so I got to do something, you know, so I, so I get, get on to LinkedIn. There's always people shuffling stuff around, right? And people are changing workplaces. And it's like if you have on your resume that you worked for Meta, Facebook, Instagram, wow, if they hired you, they're not dumb. You, they must be, you must be pretty smart. Right? And people have like great job places. Man, a buddy of mine who got hired at Amazon, he's like, man, if I can just do five years at Amazon, then I can get hired anywhere. Because if you have these, this on your resume, if you are showing yourself that these people hired you, then that shows that you have dignity, value, that you have uh, expertise, skills, that you're valuable. And so what God's saying is, you don't just have your earthly master on your resume, you have the Lord on your resume. <laughs> you, you are an asset. 
you are valuable, that the Lord has you on his team, that, he, that he's saying, I'm proud that this person works for my company. I'm excited to have this person on board the kingdom of God as a laborer and a, and, a, and a worker in what I am building here in the heavens and the earth, an image bearer, a child of God. Man, this person's great. Similarly, you think about who a person's kid is. Like whenever LeBron James' kid makes it to the NBA, which he's going to even if he shouldn't. Why? Because his dad's LeBron James, and he's like, wherever he goes, I go. That's the deal. And so who your father is and who you work for give you tremendous access and influence and social capital and power. And he's saying, hey, you don't just work for them. You work for me. I'm your boss. Consider me. I think one of the problems with us in this room is there's just kind of this fake humility that's actually just insecurity. You got to understand, you're great. God is your father. You're on his team. He's your boss. Walk with a little swagger. Understand that you're valuable. You are made in God's image. Take yourself seriously and be okay with it. I add value to this world, and so do you. You don't just work for your boss. You work for the Lord. The most wealthy landowner, company runner, institution builder in the entire world. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and he's your boss. Take some risk. Take some initiative. What do you have to lose? I mean, you have some stuff to lose, but you know... (laughs) But I think if Redemption, Gateway, people walked out understanding that they work for the Lord and the Lord's on the resume, that there will be ups and downs, there will be losses, but hopefully there's like walking with a little confidence on the fact that I'm God's kid and he's got me. And if I risk and fail, guess what? Failure's not final, it's just temporary and I can learn and pivot and go for it again. That even to be an employee, I mean, some people retire and they cease being employees, I mean, they don't get paychecks, but we need to stay employed, engaged, invested, working. Some of you work for companies and you're not employed. You're just kind of mailing it in. Get employed, get engaged. Use who God's made you to be. Work for the Lord, not for man. He elevates us, whether we're directing or not directing. All right, next thing we see here in this text, you can go next slide because I forgot what it is. Uh, people pushing, pushing people pleasers. He's really rebuking this right here. This is a problem then, it's a problem now, it's not a new problem. Um, Obeying everything, those who are earthly masters, not by way of eye service. So don't just try to look good. Don't look good, be good. As people pleasers, meaning just trying to like create positive feelings in others, don't be that, but with sincerity and heart, fearing the Lord, considering the Lord. So fear of the Lord is not just like fear of judgment, but it's actually like this reverence, awareness, sincerity of heart, that's hardiness. Um, genuine kind of like motivating people, like uh, motivated from inside, right? It's like one of my, the worst things for me is like having to motivate someone. I remember I had a mentor one time that said, you can't motivate people. You can only direct motivated people. (laughs) You can threaten people, but you can't motivate them, right? And so he's saying like sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, working heartily. This is an, an internal drive that goes, I'm participating in what God is doing. Don't just try to look good. Try to be good. Eye service, People pleasers. I talked about how we need to be a little more confident as God's kids, a little more uh, excited because we're employed by the Lord. Uh, But there's also something that I think is difficult here is if you are only working good so that your boss thinks you're good, which is a fleeting, waxing and waning motive, if you're only trying to look good so other people see you as being good, so it may not even be your boss, it may even be like, people next to you like this is like the Instagram thing like I think I had one of my supervisors in my dissertation which I wrote about uh, 
uh, social media and things like that, was like, I saw this thing the other day. This group of young women, uh, he was at the beach with his family, a group of young women came to the beach, unpacked everything, took pictures, and then left. And he's like, they only did the worst part of vacation. <laughs> What's happening? He, so my professor's like 70-something years old. He's like, you're a young person. Tell me what happened. Why is this doing this? You know? And it's like, people don't, even know how, how, people don't know how to have a good time. They know how to look like they're having a good time. Can't even enjoy something. I just know what it looks like enjoying something. They don't even know how to work hard. Just know it looks like hard work. It's this chronic brand management, eternal PR thing we have going on that I'm not really concerned with like doing a good job. I'm concerned with making sure it looks like I'm doing a good job. I don't really want to be a good dad. I want to look like I'm a good dad. I don't really want to be a good husband. I want to look like I'm a good husband. Partly because we don't even really know how to do it, but we know how to make it look like we know how to do it. That if you stop people pleasing, the odds are is you'll create negative feelings in other people and you'll have to deal with that, which is the main reason people are people pleasers is they... Don't want to create negative feelings in other people. And Paul's saying, you kind of got to stomach that too. You got to confront that, got to deal with that. But image management is not a sustainable motive, and it's an ungodly motive. We want to produce, not just look productive. Now, figuring out if you're a people pleaser is hard, right? Because... Some people who are just rude to people are like, well, I'm not a people pleaser. That's my personality, you know. Uh, that's not, so he's not saying just be mean to people, you know. That's a great way to not please people is be mean to them. <laughs> but if the main thing you're thinking about is brand management, personal PR, controlling what it looks like, cutting corners to do things, making sure certain people do certain things, like it's, and it's difficult to discern that. But that's part of what he's calling us into, is discern that. Think through that. Pray through that. Consider that. So here's a good question to ask, is who, if they developed a low opinion of you, would it give you the most anxiety? Now, why that person? <laughs> right? That's something to pay attention to this week. Am I, people, am I being a people pleaser? Am I just kind of managing what they think of me? Or am I trying to actually do the best I can for various reasons? Last thing Paul gets here is he's reframing returns. Now this is, I want to be um, sensitive here because returns are sensitive the last couple of weeks. You know, the market's down, especially you Bitcoiners, you know. Um, Verse 23, whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive inheritance as your reward. What Paul's saying here, to these people who are not being paid, which I do think is injustice, just to be clear, I do think people should get paid what they're, what they're worth, what, like pay people good stuff, you know, do what you can. Um, but he's saying, look, there's this different horizon on your returns, right? One of, one of my buddies is a financial manager, and one of the things that he kind of like beats a drum on all the time is, you know, you got to understand when you're trying to, like people, the market goes down, people panic, they get anxious, they want to pull their money out, and he's going, no, think longer term, you know, most of the time doing nothing is the right answer, you know, when the market's doing whatever it is, you know, you got to, the horizon of returns really affects what you do with your money, right? If you're trying to get a big return in two years, it changes what you do with your money. If you're trying to get a big return in 40 years, that changes what you do with your money. And what Paul is saying here is 
understand this, that there will be an inheritance that is a reward, but in the next life. <laughs> I mean, I want you to all think about there's two ways you're being compensated for your work right now. One is the immediate money you're making, right? The capital you're accruing, the assets you're developing, the skills, talents, whatever you have access to because of what you're doing right now. But Paul's saying there's a different horizon of return. There's a different way of thinking about this. And it's the way in which the Lord will pay you in the new heavens and new earth. Saying thanks for contributing and subduing and having dominion over my creation. Thank you for participating in the good work that I've been doing. Thank you for the way in which you did the work that you're called to do. Thank you for working for me and not just for your boss. That there is a paycheck coming and it's in the new heavens and new earth. Look past, look further, the immediate return. And so Paul's saying, look, you, a lot of you think about your rate of return, your return on investment, what you're going to do, what's the benefit, the cost benefit, your input, output. And he's saying, look past those earthly forms of compensation and look towards something else. Now, it's not like we're going to get to heaven and the Lord's going to write us a check and say, here you go. That's not how it works because we'll have all we need. But there will be a form of, of return or a form of inheritance, a form of participation, a form of engagement where the Lord says, I saw every ounce of labor you did and didn't do, and here is your reward, that there is a reward coming. There is payment coming. There is just compensation coming. And Paul's saying just because you are trapped in some type of unjust system now doesn't mean that I am not going to repay you appropriately when the time comes. Now he goes on then to threaten masters saying, but do what's just and fair. So it's not an excuse for unfair wages or lack of wages, but he's saying do what's just and fair. But he is encouraging the person who's stuck in the system where there's no real middle class, and that even if someone was liberated from this kind of indentured servitude, they'd probably just sell themselves into it because they need food and skills and access to labor. That's, that's how it would go. But he's saying look past this and think longer. Right? My sister, she's you know, about to go to law school, take on a whole bunch of student debt. Right? Short term, looks like a bad choice because look at all that student debt, but she's going to be an attorney. And guess what? There's, it's, a, it's an investment. Right? If she looks at her financial situation in six months, bad. But if she considers it in 40 years, a lot better. Right? Some of your attorneys are like, eh, not that much better. You know, but, it's, you know, <laughs> but it's better, right? And so don't make decisions just based on short term, but consider long term. That's what Paul's encouraging us to do. So he wants to think about this, this reality, that God has assigned to us work. He's given us skills, talents, assets, abilities to leverage and employ and do what we can with what we've been given. How many of us actually maximize God's investment in us? None of us. None of us do that perfectly. Some of us do better than others, but all of us fall short. And so a lot of the times we think about sin as just doing bad things. But what I want us to think about right now is sometimes sin is just not doing what you could have. It's leaving good work on the table. It's not maximizing God's investment into us. It's we give them talents and we just bury them, say maybe another day. That's part of the beauty of the Christian faith, is the things that we've done and the things we've left undone, the Lord forgives us of those things as well. That Jesus was assigned a task, he's assigned work, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, fulfilling exactly what he was supposed to do. On the cross when he's dying, he says, it is finished. The job is done. I did all the work. 
I didn't do it 90% and call it good enough for government work. <laughs> I did it all the way. None of us can say that. None of us can say, I've did everything God has asked me to, but Jesus did it on our behalf. And he dies in our place, and he sets us free, and so now we have this tremendous freedom, not just to sit on our butts and do nothing, <laughs> but this freedom to be a different type of director, a different type of employee, a different type of producer. Not because we're trying to earn God's favor by way of people pleasing, but because we have God's favor, we can then use our freedom to leverage our productivity in service of the common good, helping people, contributing to the, the flourishing of society. And that's what he sent us to do. Whether you're in high school or retired, whether you get a paycheck or not, we're all producing somehow. Let me pray. Thank the Lord for that. God, thank you for using us. Thank you for employing us. Thank you for engaging us. God, thanks for those in the room who have a clear sense of how that's supposed to be playing out and they're doing it. I pray specifically for folks in this room who have this kind of anxious relationship to their work that they never quite feel like they hit a stride. God, I ask that you would help them know themselves and employ themselves and engage themselves in uh, subduing the world you've given us, that we would all see uh, fields and plow them somehow, that we would see the grapes and we'd crush them and make wine with the good things you've um, called us to use. God, help us see the dignity and value of our work. God, when we're directing it and when we're receiving direction, uh, let us be working for you and not just for some paycheck. In your name we pray. Amen.